Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. If you have your Bibles, please turn in them to Psalm 92, which will be our text for this morning. In the Pew Bible, it's page 498. As you turn there, please let me open us in prayer. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us so graciously in our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We'll start this morning with a question, and it might come off a little more aggressive than I mean it. Why are you here? And I don't mean in the philosophical idea of why do you exist, or what's your purpose in life. I don't even really mean it in the general sense of why are you in Fort Smith, or why might you be a member of Covenant Presbyterian Church. I mean, why are you, on this morning, in this building, gathered together to worship the Lord with his people. After all, it's a beautiful sunny morning outside. There are plenty of outdoor activities around. You could be enjoying God's creation. I'm sure many of you have busy lives. You could probably benefit from a day just catching up on everything. And for many of you, tomorrow begins the new work week. You could probably benefit from getting a head start on what lies ahead. But something has compelled you to take out this morning and come here. Maybe it was against your will. Maybe especially for you kids. Mom and dad woke you up, dragged you out of bed, and you're here bleary-eyed trying to stay awake. Maybe you're here because this is just what you do on Sunday. You go to church, and if you weren't here, it would throw off your rhythm, or somebody would ask where you were, and it's easier just to stick with your routine and than it would be to deal with what would happen if you didn't. But some of you may be here for different reasons. You may be here at the end of your rope. You may be here confused, desperate, and lonely, And you don't know where else you could turn for comfort or for rest. You're hoping that some spark of light this morning will break through the darkness. Some of you may be here because you've experienced God's grace. You're filled with joy. And you are compelled to come and to worship him and praise him out of the happiness that you're feeling. But no matter why you are here, You are exactly where you need to be. There is nowhere better for you and I to be on the Lord's day than in the Lord's house with the Lord's people praising him. And that's exactly what our psalm tells us. It is good to give praise to God. So let's look at it together. As we do so, I hope we're encouraged to that end as we see the call to Sabbath praise, the causes for Sabbath praise, and the continuation of Sabbath praise. And first, the call to Sabbath praise. 
And as, as we look here together, I need to encourage you, when you read the Psalms, don't skip over those little things that are at the top between the title and what's usually verse 1. They're called superscriptions. Often they just mention the author, or they give the tune or the manner that the song should be sung. They may use uh, fancy terms like shigeoth or maskil, and you can use those to impress your friends. But these introductions to the Psalms are often very important for us to understand them. And in fact, for Psalm 92, that little title at the top in our English translations is actually verse 1 in the original Hebrew text. And it says, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. And at first glance, even that might seem unimportant. The Sabbath was the one day that was set aside for worship and rest for God's people under the Old Covenant. So shouldn't all the Psalms, in some sense, be songs for the Sabbath? And that, that is true. However, this is the only mention of the Sabbath in all 150 Psalms. So there's something special about what we have here that makes it especially appropriate for that Sabbath worship. In fact, Psalm 92 tells us what it is we should be doing on the day set aside for worship. It tells us what kind of songs we should sing, what things we should think about and reflect on on this day. The Sabbath song is a template for worship. And while we no longer worship on the last day of the week, as the new covenant people of God, we are still to set aside one day in seven as holy to the Lord. Our larger catechism puts it this way in the answer to question 116. Since the resurrection of Christ, the first day of the week is that day. It is the Christian Sabbath called the Lord's Day. Today, this day is to be set aside in honor of our resurrected Lord Jesus, doing what Psalm 92 tells us to do. And it tells us first, look at verse 1, it is good to give thanks to Yahweh, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. It is good to thank the Lord. It's good to sing his praises. In fact, gratitude should be our default posture to the Lord of earth and heaven, who is the source of all life, who makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. We are his image bearers, and we have been given the incredible gift of life, the ability to know him, and countless other material and immaterial blessings that we did nothing to deserve. We are fully dependent on God for our very being. So we owe him gratitude for all that he has done for us. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, he describes what a culture looks like when it descends into the deepest, darkest recesses of sin. And he says it begins with a lack of gratitude, not acknowledging what God has done for us. And how is gratitude best expressed to God? The psalmist tells us, by singing, through song. As John Wells writes, the scriptures tell us the mountains sing, the valleys sing, the trees of the wood sing. The air is the bird's music room where they chant their musical notes. So if all creation sings, surely God's own people are to join in 
join in the chorus and lift their voices in song. That's precisely what's called for all throughout the Psalms and in the New Testament where the church is told to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It is good for thankful hearts to pour out praise through song. But when the the psalmist says it's good, he doesn't just mean it's proper and fitting. He means it's good in God's eyes, and it's good for us. As Charles Spurgeon said, it's good ethically to sing, for it is the Lord's right. It is good emotionally, for it is pleasant to the heart. And it is good practically, for it leads others to do the same. This grateful singing, this is one outward expression of the reality of the shorter catechism question and answer one. Where we're taught that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We are at our best as God's creatures, when we recognize his goodness and we respond appropriately in praise. We were made to worship. Worship is inevitable for us. We'll either worship God in the way that he commands us to, or else we'll worship falsely, either by worshiping him in our own ways or refusing to worship him at all. So it would be better for us to listen to our maker And to the psalmist, when he tells us what's good for us, to sing in gratitude for all that God has done. So verse 1 tells us what to do. Verse 2 tells us when. When ought we worship? All the time. It says, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. And the psalmist here, he's speaking both literally and figuratively. It is good to give God praise in the morning when the sun comes up and in the evening when the sun goes down. We shouldn't only confine our thoughts and our praise of God to one morning, maybe an hour and a half, once a week. It's always the right time to praise the Lord. But more than just the time of day, I think the psalmist has a deeper meaning here. The church father, Augustine, had this to say about verse 2. He said, The morning is when it is well with us. The night, the sadness of tribulation. So when you prosper, rejoice in God, for it is His mercy or His steadfast love. If I praise His mercy when it is well with me, am I then to exclaim against His cruelty when it is ill? No. But when it is well, praise His mercy. When ill, praise his truth or his faithfulness. That word here in verse 2 for steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. It is the biblical Hebrew term for God's unilateral commitment of love to his covenant people. It is his mercy. It is his grace. The undeserved, unearned good that he pours out on his covenant people. So in the morning times, when your life is filled with light and happiness, this is the time to reflect on the joyful and lovely things that the Lord has granted you. But when the darkness comes, when life is difficult, when we are suffering, we need the reminder 
that God has not abandoned us. He is faithful. We praise his faithfulness in the night. He promises never to leave us, never to forsake us. And our worship in those times should take the form of remembering how he has been faithful in the past so we do not lose hope that he will remain faithful in the present and in the future. And remember, this is the song for the Sabbath, for us, for the Lord's Day, the day when we remember Christ's victory over sin and death through his resurrection. So as we sing here about the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, we don't sing about a generic kindness of God, but the mercy of God in forgiving us all our sins. When we sing about the hope and the faithfulness of God, it's not a generic hope that the sun's going to come up tomorrow and it'll be okay. But it's a hope that because he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, he surely will give us all things. He will be faithful because he cannot deny himself. So no matter if you're in a morning time experiencing God's blessings or if you're in a night time and you feel he's far away, you have a song that you can sing to him through faith. Lastly, for the call to Sabbath praise, verse 3 tells us how we are to praise. We are to make use of every tool to honor God. It says, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. The psalmist here lists out multiple types of instruments that would have been in the temple. He says, use them all. Use every single one to raise God's song. But the principle here goes beyond just what are the types of instruments that we need to use on a Sunday morning. The emphasis here is everything is made for glorifying God. We should put all of our efforts into giving him glory. Mere lip service is not enough. As Andrew Bonner says, it is upon the heart strings, so to speak, as well as the harp strings, that God's song should be played. So do not resist this call to join in the Sabbath praise of God. Instead, tune your heart and your voice. Take your place among God's people to give thanks to him in song. He's given us the call, but if you need some more persuading, the psalmist goes on to show the causes, the why of Sabbath praise. First cause he lists is the work of the Lord. Look with me at verse 4. For you have made me happy, Yahweh, by your work. For the work of your hands I rejoice. So let's pause and consider whose work is in view here. What's he talking about, work? In verse 4, the translation in front of you probably says, You have made me happy, Lord, with all caps, L-O-R-D. I've transliterated it over as Yahweh in my reading. You see, just like in verse 1, and then here, and five other places in this psalm, the psalmist speaks of the Lord by using his covenant name. The name revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Seven times. The number of completion, the number of the Sabbath. Seven times in this psalm, the psalmist speaks the name of the Lord. God has a name. We should not be afraid to call upon it. 
He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who makes and keeps covenant promises. So as the psalmist here speaks of the work of God, he's not only speaking of the creation and providence of the Lord over all of his creation. He's speaking of the things that the Lord does to save, preserve, and bless his covenant people. And it's his works and his works alone that are praiseworthy. He is the source of all good things. He is the one even working in us. So our own good works are all a result of his grace, which should once again lead us to gratitude and praise. And of course, the greatest covenant work of the Lord is his saving of his people by the blood of Jesus. Then notice the response that the psalmist has to God's work. He says, the works of the Lord have made him happy. So Presbyterians should not be the frozen chosen. We more than anyone else should recognize the abundant goodness and grace of God. You and I bring nothing but our sin to him. And because of the Lord Jesus, he forgives us. He adopts us as his own children. And he gives us eternal life as a free gift. Brothers and sisters, in light of the work of the Lord, how can we not be made glad? The fruit of the Spirit is joy. So our worship of the Lord, especially singing in the gathered worship of his people, is to be filled with gladness for all that we have seen him do for us, his covenant people. The works of the Lord should cause us to sing. And the song goes on to say, so should the wisdom of the Lord. The works of the Lord are very great, and they reveal how deep his wisdom is. Verses 5 and 6 say, How great are your works, O Yahweh! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. The word translated stupid man, sorry parents, here, it carries the idea of a beast, an animal that's unable to reason. So those who are content with the world around them are not drawn upward to the Lord. And they become content with the mere creation when they could have communion with its creator. Charles Spurgeon wrote about this passage. A man may be a philosopher and yet be such a brutish being that he will not own the existence of a maker for the 10,000 matchless creations around him, which wear even upon their surface the evidences of profound design. He says, a man must either be a saint or a brute. He has no other choice. His type must be the adoring seraph or the ungrateful swine. Because the reality is, we become like whatever it is that we worship. As Greg Beale writes in his book, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. So when we turn away from the Lord to the material world to try to find our joy or indulge ourselves in pleasure, 
We become less like the God in whose image we were created and more like the unreasoning beasts that the first man was to have dominion over. Or simply put, over time, sin makes us stupid. So we ought to seek God and seek His wisdom so we can become more like Him. But this presents a problem for us, doesn't it? Scripture repeatedly demonstrates that God's thoughts are high above ours. We are finite and fallen creatures. We can't fathom the depths of God's wisdom. So how can we begin to join the psalmist? How can we understand the works and the wisdom of God? Augustine puts it this way. He says, Truly, my brethren, there is no sea so deep as these thoughts of God. Every unbelieving soul is wrecked in that depth, in that profundity. Do you wish to cross this depth? Then remove not from the wood of Christ's cross, and you shall not sink. Hold yourself fast to Christ. Because the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is the wisdom of God. He tells us that it's through the cross of Jesus Christ that God displays his wisdom and shames the supposed wisdom of the world. So cling to Jesus. Cling to his cross. Hear him speak through his word so that your mind may be renewed and you may be transformed more into his image. The wisdom of the Lord is a cause for singing. It's seen through his works. And it's seen especially in his victory over evildoers. Or to keep the alliteration going, to be a good preacher, the win of the Lord. We see this beginning in verse 7. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Yahweh, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Yahweh, For behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. The foolishness of the unbeliever is that he thinks he can continue disobeying the law of God free from any consequence for his actions. The reality is, sometimes we're tempted to agree with him, aren't we? We look around in the world We see countless people who flaunt all of God's righteous law, and yet they seem to flourish. They seem to prosper. So we need this reminder that the psalmist gives us. They will not last. One commentator described this picture like the weeds that shoot up after the rain, but they die under the hot sun, and because they do not have deep roots, they cannot grow back again. The wicked... They pop up quickly and visibly, but they will not last. So when we see them standing taller than all the others, we are foolish to envy them. Because we know that disaster awaits the enemies of the Lord. Remember, as John Calvin says, that God does not follow our plan in the governance of the earth. And especially our timetable in punishing the wicked. He says that the wicked's flourishing is only becoming ripe for the harvest of judgment. So when we see the wicked prosper and the good suffer, 
We should heed Calvin's reminder that we do not judge God by what we see in the world, but the other way around. In fact, it would be impossible for God not to overthrow his enemies. Think how foolish it is to set yourself against the one who is most high. Kids, think of it this way. And I'm paraphrasing an example Augustine gave his church. What would happen if you went outside barefoot and you kicked the brick wall of the church as hard as you possibly could? Is that going to hurt the wall? Of course not. It only hurts you. It's the same way as those who blaspheme and attack God. They cannot hurt him. He is the most high. In their sin, all they're doing is hurting themselves in the process as they bring more judgment on themselves. It may not seem quick enough to us, but as the great psalmist of our time, Johnny Cash, sang, you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Now, it may seem odd or even wrong that I'm sitting here talking about rejoicing in the defeat of God's enemies. After all, weren't we all his enemies at one time? How can it be right to sing about the destruction of others? And I think a few reminders will help us. First, we have biblical evidence of God's people rejoicing at God's victory. After Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea, Moses and Miriam led the people in a song. You can read the whole thing in Exodus 15, and it starts and ends with this. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And unless you reply, yes, yes, that was the Old Testament. We wouldn't do that in the New Testament. Let me direct you to Revelation. I mean, really the whole book, but especially chapter 15, where verses 2 through 4 say this, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The song of Moses, praising God for defeating his enemies, is sung in heaven. So clearly... It is not wrong for us to sing in the same way. This brings me to my second reminder. God's enemies are not just those people you and I don't like. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. The greatest enemies of the Lord and his people are Satan, his minions, and our own sinful flesh. And actions. Those are the things we should have most clearly in mind when we think about the enemies of the Lord and sing songs about their destruction. And final reminder yes, there are those people who have so closely aligned themselves 
with evil. That they truly are enemies of the Lord and enemies of his church. But what is the greatest defeat given to Satan? Is it not when those people die to themselves, are crucified with Christ, are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light as new creatures dead to sin but alive to Christ? In the conversion of the wicked, the Lord displays his great might and power as Jesus bears the judgment they deserve and they receive grace upon grace. And Christian, this is your story too. So when we take psalms about judgment onto our lips, we do so first by praying that the Lord would defeat his enemies by converting them. And if not, by judging them. So yes, we can sing joyfully about the Lord's judgment because they display his righteousness and power. But only if our focus is on his goodness and how right it is that he defeats evil. And one benefit that we get of singing this way is it removes the weight from us to judge others. Jesus himself warns us that we are to take great care not to carry judgmental attitudes around with us. The Apostle Paul teaches clearly that vengeance belongs to the Lord. We do not have to see ourselves as judge, jury, and executioner for anyone. Instead, we can trust that the judge of all the world will do right and sing his praise along with the psalmist. Because Yahweh is the only one who judges perfectly, and his justice will bring perfect and eternal peace. But there's also a positive aspect of the Lord's victory, the Lord's win for those who belong to him. Look at verse 10. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. God's victory means that all those who turn to him in faith will be exalted with him. They will receive the blessing of God in abundant ways as they share life in paradise with him forever. And they have the promise of the removal of all evil at the return of the Lord Jesus. The Lord's victory should cause us to sing for joy. And it's that victory that brings us the eternal Sabbath rest that we have sung about already today and that we will share in paradise. So the psalm has given us a call to sing Sabbath praise. It's given us causes to sing Sabbath praise. Now it closes with the description of the continuation of Sabbath praise. See how the psalm ends, beginning in verse 12. The righteous man flourishes like the palm tree and grows like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of Yahweh. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. So while the wicked are like weeds, the righteous are like trees. And not just any trees. They're like cedars in Lebanon. They're like palm trees. The Lebanon cedar was the only tree worthy to be used to build the house of the Lord 
because of its strength and its beauty and its quality. There are Lebanon cedars standing today that are over 2,000 years old. And palm trees. Palm trees grow in the desert. They provide food and shelter at these oases in the midst of the least inhabitable, that's a tough word, environments in the world. Palm trees on the shores of the ocean withstand direct hits by hurricanes and can survive unfaced. They're both evergreen trees. They never shed all of their leaves. They never go out of season. They always demonstrate signs of life and health. And the psalmist says, those are the pictures to have in mind when you think about God's righteous ones. And there's another difference between the righteous and the wicked. Their location. The righteous are planted in the house of the Lord. He is the master gardener, and in his courtyard there is perfect soil. In his orchard he prunes and he feeds and he harvests to keep his trees healthy and strong. And the result is that even in old age, the people of God are just as spiritually healthy and fruitful and vibrant as they were when they were young. As long as the, world, the Lord has you in the world, he has fruit for you to produce, and he will see to it that you do. So for those among us with grayer or less hair than others, let this be an encouragement to you. The Lord will renew your strength like the eagles. And ultimately, all of his people will live together in the house of the Lord forever. The Sabbath praise will, it must continue on into that eternal Sabbath rest. Because God's purpose for these righteous trees is for them to declare his eternality, to declare his righteousness, to declare his goodness. The psalm closes, to declare that Yahweh is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. The question is, how can we be those trees? We can't make ourselves righteous. Spurgeon puts it this way. If we ever really grow in the courts of the Lord's house, we must be planted there. For no tree grows in God's garden self-sown. But once planted of the Lord, we shall never be rooted up. But in his courts, we shall take root downward and bring forth fruit upward to his glory forever. We must, by faith, take hold of Christ. He is the only true righteous one, the one of clean hands and a pure heart that can enter the courts of the Lord on his own merits. As we trust him, his righteousness becomes ours, and we are planted in his courtyard where he will preserve us so that we may live forever with him. So our Sabbath psalm gives us a call to Sabbath praise. Gives us causes for Sabbath praise. And it shows us the continuation of Sabbath praise. But practically speaking, what does that mean for you and me? I'd like to close with four questions. Hopefully you'll take these with you. You'll think about them this week. First, 
Do you prioritize coming to worship on the Lord's day? Do you agree with God that it is good for you to be in church, giving thanks to Him and praising His name week in and week out? And if not, why not? What is better than worshiping the Lord of heaven and earth who made you for that very purpose? Next, what works of the Lord have you seen? What do you have to be grateful for? Are you continually considering the blessings of God and thanking Him for His kindness to you? Have you been made glad by the works of the Lord? Third, are you in a day season or a night season? Are you experiencing joy and peace? Is that leading you to praise God for His covenant mercy? Or are you in a time of disappointment, sorrow, or confusion? Do you need to hear and reflect on His faithfulness? Do you need the reminder that He keeps His word? Finally, where are you planted? Have you come to Jesus in faith? Have you received his forgiveness? Have you been planted in the courts of the Lord where he promises you will flourish forever? He is our only hope of eternal life. So may we all trust and rest in him. The Sabbath is for singing God's praise. It is right and it is good for us. So may we do so today and forever, declaring that our God is our rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Please pray with me. Our God, you are our rock. And though we are unrighteous, there is no unrighteousness in you. So we give you praise today for your works, for your covenant mercy, for keeping your promises to us, for receiving us through faith alone in the finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ, alone. Help us as we go from here to be filled with joy and to anticipate coming back again next week and the week after and the week after to sing your praise but more than anything, to look forward to that day when we see our Savior face to face, our joy is made complete, and we live in peace with Him in the eternal Sabbath. Strengthen us by your Spirit till that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.